This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Gospel of Mark, Eternity and Readiness, a journal for a layman. And our author who joins me from, I believe it's Pennsylvania, is yes. George Andrew. Welcome, George, to the program. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Jay, and, and, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Pleasure to visit with you. You have a varied background, including the financial markets. Uh, this is something that is a personal passion of yours to study Scripture and to get yes. a better understanding. The book of Mark, why did it appeal to you? What was the focus there that drew you in? Uh, oh, that's a very complicated question, uh, Jay. Uh, a simple question, but a very complicated answer. And the... The, the, the situation is is that Mark is the first gospel, just speaking sort of factually. Uh, first one written, it is the simplest, it's the most straightforward. In a, in a way, it's the easiest to understand. Um, if you go through some of the other gospels, for example, I'm, I'm currently working on the Gospel of John. John is much denser, much more, um, in a way, literary, where, where Mark is very, very straightforward. And as I say in the book, uh, I call it almost like pencil steel, tempered. Uh, very uh, kind of almost brief uh, little vignettes uh, of the life of Jesus. Um, we don't really know, if I may say, who Mark was, but uh, we do know that uh, Mark uh, picked up the oral tradition and uh, put it into and fully inspired uh, into into words. And I, I look at Mark as, as, as I say in the book, as Jesus' sermon about his inspiration. And, of course, Jesus' inspiration is God, and it is a remarkable uh, and very short, only 16 chapters uh, of, uh, of, of, of message. Because of his style of writing, many have uh, referred to Mark as a gospel that perhaps was targeted toward the Roman uh, populace, a little more straightforward to the point, uh, militant, not militant, but, but uh, precise and, and concise mm-hmm. in, its, in its approach. Yeah, I concur with that 100%. And whether the audience was, you know, Romans or whether it was um, just, I, I would say it because it's so simple, it, 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 is, it, is, it is the least difficult to grasp. Uh, and it starts off with a bang, and it ends with a, uh, what's called a later added, kind of like a postlude, uh, later added chapter. But in between chapter 1 and chapter 15, uh, you move through various stages of Jesus' life, uh, and it's, it's it's very easy to grasp, Jay. It's not it's not it's not difficult on the surface, mm-hmm. sort of literary. Paul talked about um, three ways that he tried to communicate uh, the message, and three three groups of people that uh, got the message in in that sense. First, there were the people that got the literal message of the gospel, uh, and then there was a second group that uh, got the message of gospel but saw something more behind it. And then there was a third group that uh, he, he delivered the message to and wanted to get the message out to. Uh, it was, was people who got the literal message, saw there was more behind it, and then also wanted to live their lives according to uh, the deeper meaning. I call it the deeper well that many, many are, I think, hungering for, thirsting for, and wanting to drop into and just don't really have a vehicle for this. For me, it, it happened almost, oh, what shall I say, um, against my will. Uh, if you read my book, you'll understand that I come from a background. I'm a Roman Catholic. Uh, my father was a Unitarian uh, from the old country. And I, I just couldn't, after a period of time, I couldn't, I couldn't stay in the Roman Catholic Church, and so I dropped out and went through my own uh, agnosticism and went through my own atheism. Uh, and in the years in that time, I, I was what I hate to say this, it's such a cliche. Now, I was a searcher, and I kept looking, and I looked at various ways, uh, both that are, what I would say, reason-based, philosophy-based, religious, or even other metaphysical things. And in the end, what I started experiencing later in life, uh, after many more experiences and many more events, 
was that um, there is more here than I ever imagined. And using all of those tools, uh, I was able to address my wife's um, uh, two major medical episodes in a much more profound and much more human way than I ever have been. Your style of writing is more narrative in its approach. It's not like a typical commentary. You no. have 361 pages, but it's uh, how would you describe your style or, or your approach? Great question. Um, I originally started this as a blog. It was just me almost writing for my own sake to try to uh, uh, make sense of what was going on around me. Why, my wife's first illness was, was, was almost a... Uh, a life-ending experience for her and for me. And so my approach was just very much word of mouth, like a, almost stream of consciousness, if you will. And I, I just started writing what I knew and uh, after 40 years of, of thinking and, and, and experiencing. And then in the, in the process of, of getting sort of, hey, what am I doing here? Um, I began to dig deeper. I began to go into the work of Mark and what I was realizing was that I was saying this in a very everyday, just the way we're talking right here. And that was, I think, mm -hmm. the realization is that you can communicate with people using everyday words, but talk about these very hard words, you know, like the kingdom of God. But if you can figure out what they're pointing to and what it's getting after, you can, you can actually deliver that, if you will, to people who are uh, with you and who are interacting with you in a way that, works. When you so it is kind of simple narrative, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that if I got it, and my wife read it, who is also uh, Jewish, if she got it, then I know that many other people can get what I'm trying to get at. And the underlying message, of course, is the gospel story, but what is the uh, significance of the style and approach you've used? What do you want the everyday reader to take away from this? Yes. I, first, what I got from it was that the, the gospel's can, when you work with them, they can heal you, um, and that they can bring about a humanization like never before, um, so that you can be a better uh, father, a better uh, a better spouse. You know, uh, you can be better in all of your all of your life. So the communication that I want people to get is is that you know don't be you know don't, don't be put off by by those words that are in there. But just think about them. Um, spend a minute and, and see where you go. Now, what I'm going to say is going to sound very maybe funny or, or odd. I think it takes time to mature as, a, as an individual. A 25-year-old versus a 55 or a 65, we hope, is slightly more wise and slightly more mature. True. And in that sense, you have a lifetime of experiences and a lifetime of knowledge uh, some you can put to use, and some you want to don't want to put to use. But you want to, when you open up that Gospel of Mark, you can actually dive into it and say, you know, I've been here. I, I've had hard times. I've I've experienced resurrection. I've experienced things that in my life are asynchronous, that are unusual. Now, where, what does that mean? Why is this happening? What? But not in that sense of why is this happening to me, as much as what, what's going on. How come? And I think that's the idea of this of this whole book. George, did you journal to uh, I, I get your foundational work together, or how did this come about? Well, I, I've been journaling through my whole life. I started writing uh, a journal when I was 15, and on and off have been working. Um, and I actually went to a journaling workshop in my, in my mid-30s, uh, and it escapes me this minute uh, what the name of the, of the outfit was, but that helped me. I think the idea of writing down your thoughts, um, and, and it helps to use something like Mark or some other book uh, as a, a vehicle or as a guide, helps to clear the glass, helps to clear the internal mirror so that you can actually see a reflection there and um, notice what's, what, what is there. So that the, the process of journaling for me did just that. It, it, it cleaned up cleaned up that internal mirror so that when I looked there, I saw something, you know, not not so messy, but something that it was actually, you know, ever, what I like to say is that there was ever, I saw everlasting possibility in the midst of a life of choice and demand. 
You've mentioned this is a, uh, I guess, a culmination of uh, maybe 40 years of, of study and uh, reflection. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to actually put this book into print, The Gospel of Mark, Eternity and Readiness? Golly, you know, in a, in, a, in a sense, it didn't take long at all, and it felt like, as I say in the book many times, uh, at, at the end, at the very end, um, there are moments when I, I wrote very easily, and I guess it's true for all writers, there's moments when things pop and you're really flowing. And then there's other times when you sit down and say, you know, I've got to write something here, because you feel um, that there's, you know, something impelling, something coming from outside of you, and there's something compelling, in the sense that I wanted to get it done. Overall, I started writing uh, this book in the middle of 08, and I finished in the beginning of 2013, so just under five years, um, you know, four years uh, plus. Uh, and that was, um, you know, when I when I finished it, somewhere towards the three-quarters, uh, you know, seven-eighths of the way through, I said to myself, you know, I think I've got a book here with no intention in the beginning of, of ever doing anything like this. Uh, you use the term uh, WD-40 in uh, describing your work. How, <laughs> explain how that, how the, how that uh, uh, applies to the listener. Well, I think the, um, the, the reason I like that is, is that a lot of those words that we r- read about, you know, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, and I use Kingdom of God because he uses it so, so much, um, you, you, is, seem impenetrable when you first, uh, you know, kind of, oh, what does that mean, Kingdom of God? But if you just take a minute, very much like WD-40 loosens up a bolt that's tight or loosens up or makes things slide a little bit more, just um, just imagining that we have, it, and, and without being you know, too, uh, I, think, I think we diminish ourselves a great deal. And if you come to something like the Gospel of Mark with a certain aspiration that I think I understand this, a certain expectation that I can get this, that's the WD WD forty that I'm talking about. Is is that it just loosens things up, and you can start going with what your thoughts are. And they say, well, you know, I I I didn't know that. Or holy cow, maybe I need to spend a little more time and do a little more research or a little reading elsewhere about this. And it let let the threads lead you a little bit forward. And I think that's you know I think that's godly inspiration. Uh, you've also described what uh, could be, dis- could be de- or must be described as uh, e- something that is beyond the natural. There are some supernatural events that take place in reading Scripture, like the Book of Mark and other other passages. Uh, there's some depth there that many people overlook. I agree, Jay. Um, we live in a world that is 15-second uh, sound bites. I was watching something on Amazon, and there was a one-point, I think, a a less than a two-minute presentation. Our minds seem to be getting trained to have shorter attention spans, if you will. Yes. And in that sense, the 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 eternal or eternity, the unchanging, the immovable, um, the uh, that which is almost inscrutable, doesn't have a timeline. It, it's not a fifteen-second or a two-minute timeline. It, it, it demands of us a detention that is a little bit longer than we may be willing to spend with it. And in that case, uh, all I can say is you start with, like, you know, when you're going to walk, you walk maybe two blocks, and then you walk four blocks after a period, and then you walk a mile maybe, and then you can maybe walk three miles. But you work up to it, and you there are challenges, but you keep working at it. And so in that sense, the, 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 the spiritual or the, the transcendent, as I like to say, the mystery of life will open itself to you. How would you introduce this to one of my listeners in an easy-to-understand, approachable way and get them to go out and buy their own personal copy of your book? Well, um, I think that's, that's a great question. <clears throat> the, a friend of mine said to me, if I read this book, what's going to happen to me? And I think what's going to happen to, me, to, to you is if you're a Christian, you're going to become a deeper Christian. You're, you're going to drink from a deeper well. If you're on the outskirts, or uh, if I may use this word, marginal, um, and you're not sure, and you're, you're unsteady, I think Mark will enable you to, to stand on solid, uh, solid ground, not on sand. For those who are what I call sensitive atheists, and this person who I was with, my friend uh, Eric, uh, who is a sensitive atheist, I said, to you nothing's going to happen. 
I'm just kidding, of course. But, but if you're a sensitive atheist, you are going to be what I call more sensitive and more in tune with what's going on in not only the Gospels, if you choose to do that, but just in general in your life. So the, the invitation is, is that wherever you are, as a person, as a, uh, a pilgrim, this book will aid you and assist you in, in, in going more down the road. And there's more to come. You've got other projects in the works. I've got I've got uh, uh, I've begun working on John. As I said, John is a much much more densely packed and much uh, deeper kind of a, a gospel than than Mark is. And so I think my approach is going to be very different in this one than uh, than in Mark. And I'm already uh, beginning to wend my way through through John's uh, thought and John's. Uh, approach to Jesus, and and certainly, if Mark was not self-referential, he, he did not show Jesus as saying, you know, I am the way, the truth, the life, and the light. Where John has no problem at all mm-hmm. in 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 exclaiming that and proclaiming that. You've got two different uh, approaches and two different styles and, and presentations. I look forward to uh, talk to you when that gets uh, completed. This is a, this is a Love fascinating it. fascinating approach. Uh, Three hundred sixty one pages, more of a narrative than a uh, oh I don't know uh, an egghead approach, if I may use that term. It's uh, ver- very approachable. I appreciate it. Thank you, George, for joining me today and sharing the background story of the Gospel of Mark: Eternity and Readiness, a Journal of a Layman. Uh, George, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, they can go to my website, georgeandrewauthor.com. And uh, we're going to be putting up blogs. We're going to be putting up, uh, as we're developing this, there's going to be more interviews, of course, and more uh, of, of my thought evolving. Uh, one of the things that I, if I may say, one of the things I missed in this book is really a fuller explication of our experience of, of, of the Almighty, of our experience of God. And I hope to do that more in John. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you again, George, for Thank joining you. me today. For Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Tales of an American Entrepreneur, The Journey of a Small Business Owner. And joining me from, let's see, I think it's North Carolina. From where are you at there, Michael? It's Charlotte, North Carolina. It is North Carolina, and our and our author is Michael A. Randazzo. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. You have uh, an interesting background. I understand your family were uh, individuals who who came from Italy, and uh, did you were you born in Italy or were you born in the United States? No, I was born in the United States. My father was born in Italy. He came here as a teenager. A teenager, and and how long ago was it that he came to the United States? Ooh. Was it during World War II or after World War II? Or? Right after World War II. Yeah. Right after World War II. You, uh, because he was a uh, hair care specialist, I'll call him, he was a barber, was his trade, you decided that perhaps that might be a field you had an interest in. You opened up a salon in uh, the Charlotte area, and that has grown. How did you get started uh, with the salon, and, and how is it that it grew? What was the foundation that made people want to come and participate in what you had to offer? Sure, sure. 
you know, we'll talk a little bit about first how I got started because I do address that in the book, uh, Tales of an American Entrepreneur. Getting started was something that I knew I would do. Uh, I had been a hairdresser for a number of years, moved to Charlotte actually to open a business. So in the book, I talk about the story of meeting this realtor and she was a great person. Her first questions to me were really about uh, God and Jesus and uh, we had a discussion uh, about that before we discussed business and what we were looking for. And I really hmm. felt led to uh, Charlotte, and I felt led to um, this business because of the whole way that it, it took place. So uh, she helped me find a location. Uh, I opened that store uh, with three people, me, myself, and I. <laughs> and, you know, through hard work, a lot of hours, and let, let me restate that, a lot of hours, I was able to grow the business to one of the top 200 fastest growing salons in North America. We also recognized that one of the top 50 fastest growing privately held companies in the Charlotte region. So, you know, it, it did grow. Uh, in the book, I discuss how I, I grew it and, you know, how I came about to find it. And I try to let people know that, you know, business is not easy. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you own a business, it's rich. And, oh, you own a business, you don't have to work. Well, those are not <laughs> That's, That's a not always true. That's true. Uh, owning a business uh, does not mean you're rich, and it does not mean you do not work a lot. It's the opposite. You work a lot, a lot of hours. So it's not uncommon to put in 70, 80 hours a week for weeks or even months at end. One of, one of the challenges for a, a new business owner or entrepreneur of any type, when they hire their first employee and then maybe it grows to two, three, four employees, how do you maintain uh, the ability to keep employees. What is the the secret there to to longevity? What I what we do in our company, uh, I found over the years, is that you have to do two things. You ha it has to be a win win situation. It has to be good for the employee and good for the employer. And from my perspective, you know, I always think about how how I can do things for our employees. What can we do to either make it you know, a more fun place to work or to make it uh, a challenging place that they can learn and, and also, you know, paycheck. Let's not forget that. Right. You know, people want to be compensated, but they also want security. So things like when you can, once your business starts moving and starts growing, you don't look at profit as paycheck. So we're not looking at taking money out of the business. We're looking at putting it back in. And many people don't understand what that means. And one short example is, so as your business grows, you don't start writing yourself a bigger paycheck. No, you look at how you can provide more security for your employees. So you might now start offering uh, benefits. You might offer, you know, health care or dental plan or retirement or vacation or a number of different things that are considered as benefits. I'm sure that may take a little bit out of your out of your paycheck. But if you're looking to ultimately grow your business, you've got to be able to provide security for your employees. And you also mentioned faith as a, uh, a foundation for what you've done. Isn't that kind of go in line with that, that you put other people ahead of yourself as a good business owner? Absolutely. You know, there are so many different things that we can read in, in the Bible. And, you know, the Bible talks about making sure that people are paid what you owe them before the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't withhold from people. Um, you know, I've had to... I guess, blessing of never bouncing a paycheck. But, you know, if it ever came down to it and things were tight, I always made sure that they got paid. And now, obviously, that we've grown, we don't have those um, challenges. But, yes, you have to – I look at it very, very much from a biblical perspective of how do I run my business and how am I a steward of what God's provided for me. That's very commendable. I've, I've worked with people who are – I will quote them as – people of faith, who uh, do the exact opposite of that. They pay themselves first. They don't take care of the people that uh, they are responsible for, and it puts a, a bad reputation against uh, what they supposedly stand for. Well, I think uh, to answer that, I just think that, you know, your actions should show who you are, not your words. So your words and actions ultimately should walk the same walk. So, you know... It's important that if you if you have a strong belief, if you have a strong faith, if you have uh, a core, that you live that core and you don't deviate from it. You know, you have to be um, exactly who and what you want to be and what you profess to be. You've written 116 pages. Uh, is this book a book that will appeal to everybody, or is this one that's going to be of more or greater impact in the faith community? Well, you know, I think the best way to describe it is kind of a part memoir, part how-to guide. Um, I do talk about my faith because I really can't separate it. Um, I don't, however, 
uh, spend, you know, half the book on the faith uh, because I really think everybody can benefit from it. Um, my journey with Christ uh, has really been um, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the the foundation of my growth has been through Christ. I know there's no doubt in my mind that he's provided me um, the growth in business and in personal life. And, you know, an example of that, you had asked where I came from. I told you my dad had no education. Um, my wife grew up on a very small pig farm in West Virginia. Hmm. And I write about in a book, you know, she, for Christmas, uh, would get things that she really wanted. So, for example, she would get bananas, her own bananas, because she liked bananas. Right. We're talking poor. We're talking, you know, there was no money, okay? And to see where God has led us and brought us in our life, if I don't give him the credit, there's no way that we would have gotten there. So uh, I think, yes, the book would appeal to a lot more than just people who happen to be Christians. Because if you look at the journey and you look at what I write about, uh, the hardships, the things that you need to be, need to do to be successful, success ultimately comes from, I think, really core valuations. And we read a lot about people being dishonest in business and, you know, the Enrons and so on and so forth. And right. What reasons we don't know that God has allowed them to get where they were. I look at it this way. He allowed them to get where they were so that they can be examples of what not to do. Right. Because he's going to recognize the small guy who did something wrong, right? Nobody's going to hear about that. But when we see a large corporation, if we're smart and we see what they did wrong, we should look at it as a wrong, not a right. We don't condone it. Uh, so that's why I think he brings people to those different levels. And good foundational principles work across the spectrum. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're uh, you're a faith person or not. If you follow principles of uh, a basic good common sense and good business practices, especially ones that honor other people, it's going to benefit you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. You know, uh, if you're running a business and you're, you have, sometimes we see these TV shows where they're running around telling you you're fired and you're horrible and they're yelling and screaming at their employees. Boy, right. I don't think I'd have an employee last. <laughs> 20 seconds, they believe. I wouldn't be there if I was an employee, for sure. No, in a way. So, you know, you have to, you have to treat people, uh, with respect and with honor and, but you also have to expect it as well. And you can't expect to be treated with respect and honor if you're not giving it. Share with my listeners and those that might be uh, business owners, how do you approach advertising? Because that is a, uh, a very vague return on in, uh, investment sometimes. But how do you approach it? Well, um, the first thing I'll say is that you must measure your return on that investment. So you must you must measure how your clients and your customers hear about you. So you can't throw advertising dollars out without seeing what that success rate is. Um, the way that I always went about with advertising was not only did I measure and track my advertising, but I looked for how can I get the biggest bang for the least buck. And I think we all, you know, that's sort of common sense. Um, my business and, and where we position our salon is not necessarily a cost-driven business, so we're not, you know, the low end where people are just looking to save the nickel. Right. So I've advertised my business where I cut my service prices. I've never done that. Um, we advertise really um, the value, and we look at, you know, trying to promote ourselves as quality. Now, there are different things in different businesses, and I also talk about advertising in the book. I talk about in the beginning how I did what's called advertorials, um, where they're not just your ad of, you know, buy one, get one free, or come in and get 20% off, but they're really a story that's told about your business, so it looks more of story form. And that was very appealing to a lot of people. We were very successful with that. Um, the other thing is to maximize your, your PR. When you have uh, people talking about you, um, that can be very effective. So, you know, you always have to spread your good word, and I talk about that in a book as well, to everyone that you meet and everyone that you talk to and let them know how great things are going and what you're doing that's good. You know, I speak to some business owners that sort of are always talking about how hard and how horrible it is, and, and it almost reminds me of that guy, um, oh, Pigpen, I think it was, and Charlie Brown, he's right. a cloud of dirt around A lot of dirt everywhere. No, they're, they're like, oh, it's horrible, and business is tough, and this is wrong, and that's wrong, and this is wrong. You really, 
you can't do that. You have to center yourself around what's good and sort of create an upward spiral instead of a downward trend. Um, so looking at advertising, tracking your costs, tracking how your customers hear about you, and thinking about who it is you're trying to reach. Before you do an ad, you really have to think about your target market and and how you're going to best reach them. Is it a, you know, is it an age group? Is it a gender? Um, and then look at the form that you're going to advertise in and are, you know, is that their, their, um, their key customer as well? Or is that who you're going to reach to them? Do you also have community involvement? Uh, do you attend, uh, you know, social, not social, but networking events and things that helped promote your, your business? Well, going through some of the things that help promote business, yeah. We have done in the past a lot of different things, where, whether it was, um, you know, working for charity. Um, and I don't know how I'm getting into charity, but, but you know, a lot of times uh, we donate, whether it's financially or personally, to a lot of different things, but we don't really speak about that. Um, I do support a Christian radio station we've listened to for the past 20 years, so we became partners in ministry with them. And from my perspective, it wasn't really for advertising, although they do, you know, mention your business on their radio. My main reason for supporting them was uh, for me to promote God's kingdom. Uh, it's a great radio station, plays Christian music, um, and they've actually recently been sold, so there's a new company taking over. But when you look at things like that and how you're going to promote your business, and, and whether it be through, you know, a faith-based organization or whether it be through uh, charities or whether it be through... Uh, different PR events, you have to really look at what it is you're trying to accomplish. If it's a charity, um, you know, we're told to, to, to just give. And, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. You know, you That's just true. give. And for the intention, and I think your your intention has to be first and foremost. Now, if that business is, you know, if God decides that business is coming back to you, it will. And in my case, I can show you how it has. And in the book, I show you how it has happened that, you know, when you honor something bigger than yourself, uh, you grow with that honor. Yeah, some people use that phrase, paying it forward, uh, although that uh, does seem to apply in, in the world in general. It does absolutely work in the faith uh, faith community. You've uh, titled the the name of your uh, salons, or called your salons, Harmony Salon, which I think is a great name. How many uh, locations do you have currently? Well, you know, actually, uh, we do have only one location. Um, one location. I started out in a small location. We moved across to a larger location once we were getting some recognition. Uh, we started getting written up in magazines like Elle Magazine and Ladies Home Journal. and uh, So we were getting good press, but our location wasn't reflective of that. So we moved across to a new shopping center, and then I... Several years after that, opened another location, which was actually going to be a second but here's one thing for all of you nascent entrepreneurs that want to expand your business. It's not always about how many locations you have. And I'll tell you, when you get into multiple locations, it becomes a much harder animal to control. Right. Um, so we had a couple, you know, we had a couple of locations and, uh, one of the leases was coming due and it, the landlord just was not reasonable. And I'm not going to sign a, um, lose-win deal or a win-lose deal. It's got to be good for both parties. So I decided to um, close that location and bring it, you know, bring everything into the one new location. And at the time going through it, it was a very difficult um, decision to make. You know, I wanted more locations. I wanted to do better. You know, I wanted more. Right. And so I made the decision based on the fact that the lease was not really a good lease to sign Due to, um, you know, the rent being more than what it was worth and then some language in the lease that was prohibitive to growth. Well, when I moved the location, uh, when I closed and we moved into one location, we just about doubled our revenue, streamlined our liabilities. I saw more profit than I ever thought I would see in such a short term. So it turned out to be an extremely great move. As you grow your business and you grow your location, depending on what you want, obviously, you know, think about it. If you're going to expand your business and become, you know, a, a, a publicly held company, well, then, yeah, you probably need multiple locations and you probably need to go on, a, on another path. But if you're looking to have a good, strong, profitable, profitable business, you know, multiple locations gets tough. One location is a lot easier to manage and a lot easier to run. And it can be, you know, I mean, 
we've taken it from just myself to a multi-million dollar company. So you, you can do pretty well. Wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, 116 pages, a uh, short read, but full of uh, wonderful suggestions and recommendations and uh, leadership skills. The title is The Tales of an American Entrepreneur, Journey of a Small Business Owner, and my guest has been Michael A. Rendazzo. Michael, where do my listeners get copies of your book? Well, you can find it at authorhouse.com. You can find it on Amazon, but it is available on amazon.com and authorhouse.com. Fantastic. Probably Barnes and Noble and other, other local bookstores can, they can order it in for, for the listener if they choose to uh, request it. Uh, Michael's last name is spelled R-A-N-D-A-Z-Z-O. Michael, thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me. Enjoyed it. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Retire Wealthy, the tools you need to help build lasting wealth on your own or with your financial advisor. And the author is Eric D. Bratman, and Eric joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Eric. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. And... Retire wealthy, I think everybody loves the sound of that, but it is a process. It takes planning, it takes discipline, but you've laid it out in a real real easy-to-read book, not a textbook. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you did this. Uh, several reasons, Steve. Actually, first and foremost, I think we, we lack financial literacy in this country in such a profound way. We, we don't teach it in schools. Uh, and young people are very ill-prepared to make very big financial decisions at a very young age. Uh, and that can be student loans, it can be credit cards, it can be other things that can really, really put folks in a, in a hole. So uh, my objective here was to figure out um, how to create a tool that, that, that anyone could use. Um, the second reason I wrote this book is that uh, financial advice can be daunting and it can be expensive. And so for, for uh, the, mass, the masses of, uh, of the Americans, it's beyond reach financially to go out necessarily and hire someone to do these kinds of things for you. And the problem is, no matter where you go, if you're working with a, a salesperson or a specific company, uh, the advice is an objective. So this became a tool that, that folks could use to really do this on their own uh, or to figure out if, in fact, uh, someone is a candidate to hire a, a financial team and a financial advisor, how to do it and how to figure out how to interview somebody to make sure you get the right person. Well, you've been working at this for how long in financial planning? 20 years. 20 years. You have your own company. Uh, one of your reviewers said this is an essential manual for anyone who wants to understand how financial planning really works. And that's, I guess the key word is essential manual. Yeah, this is, there's not a lot of fluff here. The book is not long. It's not difficult to read. It's not super technical. It's designed to be in a, a conversational tone, and it's designed to be the type of read that somebody can, can do on a, a flight from Philadelphia to Boston. And the idea behind it was let's, let's put tools in someone's hand and then allow them to implement them without getting lost in the shuffle of a 400-page tome. So a how-to book, a handbook, and again, we want to emphasize 
financial literacy. We really need to become financial literate so we can gain control of, of our finances. That's right. Misinformation is, uh, and lack of information is, is really the culprit of a lot of this, plus the way each of us are raised. I mean, we all have baggage around money and money issues that stem from the way we're raised. And without any kind of formal education, uh, we learn what our parents demonstrate. And a lot of our parents had lousy habits with money, and so we learned them. And then we live in a culture, especially in America, instant gratification. Yep, it's the buy now, pay later. And, you know, even, even our economy, when you think about our economy, it's so driven by consumer spending that uh, if, if everyone stopped spending at the same time, it would do lousy things to the economy on a macro level. And yet, it's the exact right thing to do on the micro level at a household level. So the, the very thing that's best for those folks who want to stockpile uh, capital and want to grow to the point where they have financial independence it's it's good for a household. It's potentially lousy for the economy. Chapter 1 starts out, basic definitions underlying retirement planning and wealth creation, of basic definitions. So you're getting right down to the bottom line. Well, yeah, and retire wealthy is a loaded title because wealthy means something different to everyone. Um, there's a, a spot in the book where I, I, I uh, quote Chris Rock, the comedian, and, and one of the things he said was that if Bill Gates woke up tomorrow with Oprah's net worth, he'd want to jump out a window. Uh, the fact of the matter is wealth is relative. And so to me, it was important to redefine what retirement is and to redefine what it means to be wealthy. So retirement to me is not getting a gold watch and uh, and riding off into the sunset at 62 or 65 or 67 or some other arbitrary age. To me, retirement is that moment where you're working because you feel like it, not because you have to. So I believe that the ability to retire is the ability to be independent, the whole take this job and shove it mentality, but more or less, what can I do to create uh, enjoyment in the latter part of my life? Um, and, and reaching that financial spot, reaching that independent spot is really the critical notion. I think the idea of retirement is, is antiquated. The idea that we would work for, for 30 or 40 or 50 years and then sit home and watch television or play shuffleboard makes no sense to me. Uh, it's not healthy, and uh, with folks living so much longer and fortunately so much healthier into much later years, what are you going to do for 20 years? So to me, retirement is not so much the absence of work, it's the absence of needing to work. And, and wealthy to me, wealthy to me is when you no longer need one more paycheck. You don't need it. That doesn't mean you don't earn it. doesn't mean you don't go create some consultancy or do something for, 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 uh, for financial gain. It just means that if you never do again, you're okay. Financial independence. Correct. And don't put it off. Start not only today, start immediately. Yeah. There's, there, it, no matter what your age, it is always better to begin that process than not to. The first step's the hardest. And building good habits, even if you're a young person and you say, my gosh, I'm, I'm barely making my rent, getting into the habit of doing something, however modest, is a habit that will be with you for your entire adult life. So uh, in much the same way, uh, starting a, a, a nutrition plan or an exercise plan or any other thing that, that sometimes feels daunting, you have to build it into to being habitual so that it's just part of what you do, and you have to make it automatic. You have to make it as just something you do. Well, we all pay those bills every month, but most of us fail to pay the most important bill, as you put it. Pay yourself first. Correct. Before you, you start allocating any of your resources and paying mortgages or rent or electric bills or anything else, it's important to take something from your gross earnings and pay yourself. So that means put it into your 401k, your 403b, some form of IRA, even some kind of savings account, or in some cases, just paying principal down against debt. You know, the key is to live on less than 100% of what you make. So if you can live on 85%, that 15%, wherever it goes, so long as it's something that's, that's lending itself toward getting to financial independence, that's a good thing. And every time you get a raise, every time you increase your, your top line, you increase what you're putting away, either by a larger percentage or by maintaining that percentage, and it's a path to get there. It's a path to freedom. There are some decisions we need to make before we start investing. Why don't you just give us a few? Well, the first thing is uh, you have to have a philosophy 
on investing. And you also have to understand not only your tolerance for risk, um, but the emotional state that you're in when you do it. Anything we automate, whether it's through dollar cost averaging, whether it's through any kind of routine deposits, tends to be better because it removes the emotional baggage and torture of trying to figure out, is this a good time to do this? Do I really want to do this? Is this threat? If you eliminate all of that noise in your head, which, by the way, our heads are cluttered with all kinds of things, and this is not something most people think about all the time. If you can automate it to the point where it's going to happen in good markets and bad, and you can tolerate those swings based on an appropriate level of risk, then that, coupled with the right philosophy, will lend you to making good, uh, it'll lead you to making good investment decisions. And it sounds like, as you were pointing out, it isn't so much how much you're investing, it's the fact that you're investing. Yeah, you have to get started. And, you know, to, to suggest that the dollar amount doesn't matter is a, little bit, uh, uh, is a little bit naive. It does matter. But the more important thing is to begin that process and to get comfortable with it and to make sure you understand not only what you're doing and why you're doing it, but whether or not you're on track for where you're trying to go. It's very difficult to start any kind of journey, whether it's a financial one or a physical one, without having some kind of end point in mind. So if you know where you are and you've taken inventory and financially you know, here's my net worth, here's my balance sheet, this is my income statement, this is what I earn, this is what I live on. Once you've done inventory for yourself, then you can sit and envision what would it look like if my income right now, adjusted for inflation at whatever number of years in the future, if it could be the same, how much money would I have to have to do that? And then what do I do to get on track? What assumptions do we make about inflation? What assumptions do we make about returns? What assumptions do we make about uh, uh, market conditions or economic conditions or even our ability to work? And you're, you're never, there's no plan that's perfect, but the objective here would be to monitor this plan and to adjust this plan on a constant and regular basis, at least annually, if not more frequently, so that you always know where you stand and are you moving closer to or further from your target. How do we determine the need for a financial advisor? Well, I think first, first it, it comes down to how complicated your world is. It also comes down to your basic level of, of understanding, um, how financially literate you really are and being honest with yourself. And then, frankly, I don't think it's a bad idea to interview a financial advisor or two or three and find out what types of services they offer. And so what we did in Retire Wealthy is create a blueprint and a, a, a questionnaire for a potential financial advisor. What are the things you need to ask him or her about their philosophy, about their fee structure, about, their, uh, about the way they manage money, about the way their team is set up, about the, the, the trajectory their firm is on, about who their typical clients are, all those kinds of things so that you find the right fit. There are so many different kinds of financial advisory firms. There's banks and trust companies and insurance companies and, and brokerage firms and independent financial advisory offices. And there's so many, and there's so many different designations and so much um, confusion out there, frankly, in the financial space. In the accounting space, you're either a CPA or you're not. In the legal space, you've either passed the bar or you haven't. In the financial space, for whatever reason, the, the industry has matured. It's, it's brought a bunch of different industries together, and there's no agreement. There's no agreement on what it is or isn't to be a fiduciary. There's no agreement on what it is or isn't to be objective or non-proprietary. And there's no agreement even on what designation or designations make someone most qualified to work with, with families. And so because of that confusion, you, you know, you, you interview three different financial advisors, you're going to get three completely different blueprints for their, their models, their deliverables, their fee structure. I mean, there's so many different ways to do this. And so we tried to lay out all of the various questions to ask and some of the red flags to look for when you, when you hear them, or at least some of the things to lean towards in terms of, of who to hire and, and how to do that. There are risks in investing, and you're there in your book to help us avoid the pitfalls. Certainly trying to. I mean, sometimes you win by not losing. So it's, uh, it's real important to have a risk management plan. It's important to have the right insurances. It's important to have the right legal documents, the right tax decisions. It's important to have what we refer to as a dream team. I mean, the, the, the dream team of advisors, and not only having good people, but having all of them know what one another are doing.
it's critical that, that your, your specialists, whoever they are, whether it's tax or legal or real estate or mortgage or banking, or, that they all know what one another are doing so there aren't hemorrhages or mistakes or, or omissions. Another reviewer says, Retire Wealthy is a comprehensive yet easy-to-read page-turner. It's an excellent introduction to the generally misunderstood world of money. And it's interesting that he said what it is and what it is not. I guess that's an important area, too, what it, it is not. Yes, this, this book is not, uh, it's not preachy, it's not a textbook. Uh, it, you know, no one's going to read this and feel badly about themselves. I think people are going to feel empowered by it. Um, everyone who's read the book, who's, who's gotten in touch with me, has said that they feel like they've learned something, they feel like they are better equipped than they were before they read it, and that is a, a huge uh, feather in, in my cap as an author and as an advisor that we've made a difference for people who are reading this. It's, it's a, it is a very useful tool. It is an easy read. Um, we've, even, we've even done the book in relatively large print because a lot of folks who want to read this are, are older, and we want to make sure that they can read it without, without having a difficulty in doing that. So it's, it is a very easy read, whether you're on an airplane or whether you're uh, a senior or what have you, and, and that was done on purpose. What is your website? Website is www.brotmanfinancial.com. That's B-R-O-T-M-A-N, financial.com. And the title again is Retire Wealthy. We've been talking to Eric D. Brotman, the author. Eric, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, best way to do it actually is through our website. There's a link on the homepage uh, that says books, uh, and you can you can click on that and go directly to a spot to buy the book in hardback, softback, or ebook format. Uh, you can also get them at any major retailer, Amazon or others. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for joining us on Author Talk. Steve, thanks for having me. <laughs> 